is an Odyssey original. This is Coronavirus Daily World on Pause. I'm Charles Feldman from the KNX Odyssey Studios in Los Angeles. And I'm Mike Simpson. We have a story of survival. A 31-year-old from here in Southern California spent seven months in the hospital because of COVID complications, had pneumonia, needed dialysis, was on a ventilator, was given a 50-50 chance to live, and did. On top of that, he lost part of his leg and his partner was pregnant with their second child. He's now out of the hospital, just released, in fact, and he's with us to share his tale of survival. Guess what the scientists have found? Possibly another coronavirus, so we'll tell you about that one. And another one. Yeah. Why don't they go away? I think we should stop. Just, just go away. Dating apps are going to add some bonuses for people who are vaccinated and they are getting help from the White House. And now the people are returning to the office. The professional cleaners are seeing more business. Let's start with Carnell Hampton and his struggle for survival. Carnell, you're you know, you're a pretty young guy. Uh did you give COVID much much thought before it it really kind of reached out unfortunately for you? Um to be honest, I I'm going to be honest with you. Um I didn't take I didn't take the virus serious. And that was my fault, like, you know, especially being a part, being a dad and with my two, well, at that time with my one son, but I wasn't wearing a mask or where, like, when I was going to work, I wasn't wearing a mask, I wasn't wearing gloves, touching people IDs, giving it back to them. So that was my fault when this whole virus had hit by not taking it serious. And it hit me and it hit me hard. So that's when, you know, I woke up on being intubated and was like, oh, this stuff was real. And and what happened then with your leg? What was the situation with that? Well, pretty much before I did, before I actually considered the amputation for myself, um, I, okay, so when I woke up being intubated after two weeks, pretty much like my feet were swollen, so they turned in like, turned into blisters. Those blisters started popping, started turning into wounds. And then um, my feet, actually not my feet, yet my toes, they kind of, they not kind of, they went completely like dead. They was like mummified. There was no way of saving my toes at all. So November 2nd, I got an amputation on my t- all, all 10 toes. But then um, I was doing debriefments for six months, um, twice a week, all this other stuff, going under anesthesia twice a week for six months. And then... Next thing I know, I had like this bone exposure on the, on my right heel and pretty much my podiatrist. So we had, cause we got into like a, a whole meeting or whatever. And I had only out of four months of him cutting the bone down into my skin, only had 10% skin growth. So I, that's out of four months and only 10%. I still would have been in the hospital if I would have actually uh, not went with the amputation. Wow. So that was that was the decision. Stay there or or we take some yeah. of your leg. What made me come to that decision was when I seen my uh, my second son for the first time because my lady gave birth. When I went into the hospital August 12th, my lady was already two months pregnant. So she went through the whole pregnancy the seven months without me. So she gave birth, everything, without me even being there you know, and held it down at the house or whatever. So when they started, like, you know, letting visitors come to the hospital, they started also letting an exception 
of for my family to come, which I appreciate that so much from St. Joseph's because I needed that so much just because like those those video chats wasn't enough, you know, like just seeing them do video calls and all of that. Yeah, and just a new baby on the on the screen. So yeah. you so you're in the hospital for seven months. Uh, do you have? health insurance of some type because i'm wondering about what kind of bills you are being hit with uh um i'm not for sure what i'm getting hit with yet but i do i did have cal optima so it was just a regular medi-cal so it's just kind of a wait and see what they're gonna send you at this point yeah i think so so like um I, I, I did have a I did have a nurse help me with uh, starting up like a GoFundMe, you know, just in case like you know these because I was saying myself because I was also talking to a case manager like you know I'm pretty sure that they're going to probably hit me with at least third of the bill because I, I I racked up some I did some damage you know as I was in the hospital so I'm pretty sure they're going to hit me with something they're not just going to just let me go free so. I'm pretty sure I'm going to have some type of bills to, like, pay them back or something. Now, what's ahead for you now? Um, so pretty much I'm, like, I'm at this rehab. Uh, so I'll be here for two, like, a couple weeks technically just trying to, you know, get strength and mo- more mobility and just being stable, like, you know, trying to be on my own, more dependent. And that's about it. And then technically I go back home after that. So I'll be here for knock out another couple more weeks, and then I'm, I'm headed home. All right. 31-year-old Carnell Hampton. Carnell, we wish you the best. Uh, thanks so much for talking to us. Out of uh, Orange County, discharged just yesterday from Providence St. Joseph. Seven months fighting off that COVID infection. New research is out on possible new coronavirus. This one originates in dogs and has at least once made the jump from a dog to a child in Malaysia. Are we in for another pandemic? Dr. Anastasia Vlasova, professor at the Department of Veterinary Preventative Medicine, Ohio State's College of Veterinary Medicine. She's researched this canine coronavirus. Uh, doctor, what do we know about this one? So first, I want to start with do not need to panic. <laughs> it doesn't seem that this one... <laughs> Good news. <laughs> okay, so, so we're going to underline that for you. Do not panic. <laughs> okay, that's the main message. Do not. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> so I, um, I want to draw everybody's attention to the fact that likely it was happening for many years, if not decades, that these canine uh, coronaviruses were uh, jumping from dogs to humans. But I think those cases were dismissed for the most part as anecdotal cases, anecdotal, and um, not paid enough attention to. So I don't think there is a need to change our attitude about our pets and dogs specifically. Um, so what we need to start paying more attention to is we need to study what um, canine coronaviruses are out there in dogs, uh, what's happening, what changes are occurring. And of course, we need to look more in, at the interface um, between, um, you know, animal, human uh, because if we would suddenly to see an increase in the prevalence of this canine uh, coronavirus in human population, that would be an alarming signal. And as for now, we're just going to conduct more research to evaluate its actual prevalence. Well, the, the were, were there symptoms that the uh, uh, the child got from the coronavirus contracted from the dog? Yes and no. So uh, there were uh, patients with pneumonia. 
and the coronaviruses were suspected as one of the contributing pathogens. So the child that was actually um, the, used as a source of the virus that we isolated the virus from um, was the youngest child. I think uh, it was an infant, five and a half months old, who was treated for pneumonia. Oxygen was supplied. Uh, and after six days, it, uh, she or he was released from the hospital. Actually, nobody died from this coronavirus. All the patients were treated and released within a few days. So obviously what we watched for, right, is it goes from dogs to humans, but so far it's not dog to human to other humans, because that would be the big concern. Yes, that would be the biggest concern. And right now we don't have an evidence for that. So we will conduct further studies to evaluate if there is a human to human transmission or those are in fact all dead end infections. And um, if there, there is a human to human transmission, how efficient it is. So that's our new goal. I mean, is, is, is it likely that this sort of thing happens all the time? But, you know, in the pre-COVID-19 days, am I correct? There wasn't a lot of interest in studying coronaviruses. And now, of course, there is. <laughs> yeah, you're absolutely correct. I think uh, people who are actually scientists who are actually working with coronaviruses for decades they were predicting this pandemic, but uh, yeah, they were all complaining that people do not pay enough attention to coronaviruses and there will be um, a pandemic or epidemic. And so right now, definitely there are many, much more attention, many more tools to detect these coronaviruses because it's not that easy because coronavirus shedding uh, or the time that it's being released into environment by the infected uh, organism um, is very limited. So you miss that those few days, you miss the um, um, evidence. So right now, definitely be, uh, more attention being paid to coronaviruses. And I know there is uh, recently another report um, about swine coronavirus in, infecting uh, children in Haiti. So I think we're just going to be finding more and more of such information and definitely need to pay more attention because when it can become um, risky and tricky, it's when animal coronaviruses that are not very capable of replicating very well in humans uh, may recombine with human common cold coronaviruses and create new variants. I, I presume the dog and child both okay now, doctor? They're all okay, except I'm a little worried about the dogs. Oh, okay. <laughs> Worse for what, the dog. What, what is there something unique uh, about coronaviruses, the family of coronaviruses, that make them particularly worrisome uh, in terms of, of animal to human transmission? Is there something about them that makes them more you know, suspect as causing a problem down the road? I would say yes. So coronaviruses, they have the largest uh, genome for among all RNA viruses. What it um, does, it allows them to adapt to new hosts or new ecological niches much more efficiently than many other viruses and much faster. To say it in simple words, um, they already pre-exist uh, like, like several species are slightly different um, from one another that are called quasi-species. So within the same organism. So they're kind of ready to change their genomes and their biological characteristics very, very quick. 
So, and it allows for a certain degree of um, receptor usage promiscuity. And it's when the same viral protein can bind to cellular receptors or molecules on the cell surface of animals or um, humans that are same homologous, but slightly different between one another. And I think coronaviruses don't care about it as much as many other viruses. So that makes them... Yeah. So, so when it comes to watching out for, you know, next pandemic, whatever year it's going to come our way, in terms of the monitoring that we need to be doing, the public health funding that we need to have so we can pick up cases like this and then catch them fast enough before the virus figures out that, you know, we can we can pull it off in a human. I, I can I can mutate. So I'm a little more uh, hospitable f- to host this thing. What does that mean for us going forward? That's right. That's what we need to start doing. We we need to start looking more at pre-pandemic strains rather than, aha, virus is already efficiently infecting uh, humans and transmitting with the wildfire speed. So we need to start looking at pre-pandemic variants that already can infect humans, but cannot transmit from one another very efficiently. I think that's the only way to control future pandemics more efficiently than this one. So uh, here's a question, because we were talking a little bit before about uh, the scientists who, for years, they were working uh, about and wanted to do more on coronaviruses, and, and there wasn't a great deal of interest until now when there's the pandemic. So are those like scientists getting a raise now because they can say, we told you so? No, but I think there's some degree of satisfaction. If you <laughs> I bet there is. I told you so. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, I had to be right, but I was. Uh, Dr. Anastasia Vlasova, professor at the Department of Veterinary Preventative Medicine, Ohio State's College of Veterinary Medicine. Doctor, thanks for talking to us. The Biden administration teaming up with the top dating apps to provide some extras for people who are vaccinated. They'll get online badges that say, I'm vaccinated. One research company says people who are vaccinated or plan to get 14% more matches on OkCupid than people who don't plan to get vaccinated. Dr. Mary Beck Griffin studies and teaches sexual health and epidemiology at the Rutgers School of Public Health. So, doctor, good idea, bad idea? Great idea. I think anything that we can do to get people vaccinated, especially as they're starting to hit a plateau in the number of people who are newly vaccinated, I think that's a great thing. I also think that all of these extra perks on people's profiles are maybe not the making them show up more often, but like all of the extra perks on their profiles act as a visual cue to other people who maybe haven't been vaccinated yet that they should be. And I also think most importantly, it helps regulate and normalize conversations around your health, especially when you're talking to somebody new and maybe going out on a date and possibly then maybe having sex with them. I think anytime we normalize conversations about how we're protecting our health with vaccines, using condoms, birth control, things like that, um, and getting tested, anything we can do to encourage those conversations, always a good thing. When I was thinking about this, I thought, okay, there must be someone or a few people who are young in the White House, and they're on these apps, and <laughs> and people are writing it in on their own. So they're saying, you know, somewhere in the profile, they're saying, hey, fully vaccinated here. So is, if you notice that people are taking their own initiative to write it in, then why not give them the little, you know, Band-Aid badge next to their name so then you know that way and everyone can have it or, or not have it. Yeah, absolutely. And a lot of my friend groups on some of the other social media platforms are putting things like fully waxed and vaxxed. So it's out there and people are having fun <laughs> with for it. summer. <laughs> yeah, they're out there. They're having fun with it. And again, I think making conversations about our health fun and normal is a good thing. And one of the things I'm hopeful for is that we've spent so long talking about 
who we've been out with, who we've been socializing with, who we've been wearing our masks with, that these are conversations that we then start to apply when we're talking about having sex with a new partner for the first time. And really just like opening up these lines of communication. It's the same skill set. We're just talking about different things. Coronavirus versus syphilis or chlamydia. But but how do we know that the people on the dating apps are being honest. I mean, you know, if it becomes the craze to say I'm vaccinated and if somebody thinks they have a better shot at getting a date by saying that, what's to stop them? Well, I mean, yeah. So that's always the problem is when we bring in humans and honesty. But again, I mean, so I think anytime you're on a dating app, you have to just kind of have a leap of faith that the other person is who they say they are. And what they're telling you is the truth. Because if I knew a way to verify information on dating apps, I would be a millionaire <laughs> and maybe not a professor. Um, but I'm sure I'm, if the Biden administration is partnering with the dating apps, I'm sure there's a way maybe that they're vaccinating. Maybe you have to upload your vaccination card or something like that. Um, again, if that's not the case, I'm going to take this idea and go back and talk to some app developer friends and see what I can do. <laughs> All right. Dr. Mary Beth Griffin studies and teaches sexual health epidemiology, Rutgers School of Public Health. Doctor, thanks. Coming up after this short break, you better dust off those collared shirts and pants if you want to impress the boss. Professional cleaners are seeing an uptick in business. As people return to the office, they have to make sure they're attire is in order. No more sweatpants, folks. No more t-shirts because uh, you're on the job at home. Tom Ryan, vice president of the franchise development for CD1 Price Cleaners in the Chicago area. He talks to WBBM's Cisco Cotto. It was rough. It was rough for our, our chain of stores and certainly for the industry. When the, when the governor uh, issued the stay-at-home order, we were deemed to be an essential business but with everybody working from home, they weren't dressing up and they weren't wearing their normal attire and they weren't going to restaurants and going to various events. So our, our business uh, certainly certainly suffered uh, pretty, pretty hard early in the pandemic. But we're certainly seeing some green shoots here as the vaccines have been rolled out. People are feeling more comfortable and they're, they're beginning to return back to work. And so you're already seeing that is what you're saying that you're because, I mean, we're noticing more traffic on the expressways, more people downtown. And so your business is experiencing that as well. People are getting back to it. They are. They are. And we think that there'll be a hybrid approach, you know, to allowing people to return safely to work. But sort of anecdotally, as you're referring to, uh, there is more traffic. There are more people parked in various uh, parking lots for for places of work. And and we are seeing uh, we are seeing things return. We're certainly not back to where we were. Uh, but uh, but we are we are certainly seeing a return of, of business back to the stores. In general, I, I'm pretty sure you do this. In general, have you seen dry cleaners even before the pandemic having to to sort of pivot and expand a little bit beyond just dry cleaning to also other laundry services? Right, absolutely, and we certainly have been leading that charge as well here in Chicago with. What, what, what would be termed as kind of personal wash and fold laundry. And certainly during the pandemic, uh, that picked up. We were, we were cleaning more household goods as consumers were concerned about safety and, and the health of their families. Uh, we were seeing more comforters and those types of things, you know, coming into the store. And certainly uh, we, we also offer that pickup and delivery service or a pickup and delivery service for personal wash and fold laundry in certain areas of Chicago as well. And that was a safe, convenient alternative for people who, who for one reason or another, might not have wanted to venture out into a retail store. 
Good to see more small businesses on the rebound, for sure. That is Tom Ryan, Vice President of Franchise Development at CD1 Price Cleaners. The U.S. isn't the only place offering lotteries and prizes to encourage people to get vaccinated. A district in Thailand has come up with a plan to boost vaccination rates. Now, one lucky villager will be randomly chosen every week for the rest of the year to win a young cow. One district chief says it's working. Vaccine registration numbers have gone from hundreds to thousands in a couple of days. He says the villagers love cows and they can be sold for cash. Is that where they got the expression of cash cow? Cash cow. Yeah, yeah. wow. I love cows too. Yeah. I'd like that as my vaccine but, reward, please. Let's see if we can milk this one. I'll even bring more. it into the office. <laughs> this is an Odyssey original. Find us on the Odyssey app, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. Thank you.